All right, welcome everyone to the 10th episode of Elections Weekly. Uh, really excited to to be here for this. We've been crazy to think we've been doing this for 10 episodes now. Um, but we got a great show for you this week. We've got uh, Joe Szymanski, uh, Dylan Wade, and Kraz Greinitz all here. Um, and we're going to be talking some politics. So um, I guess I'll kind of just jump us right off. Uh, the first item we have on our discussion here is the Georgia Senate special election. Mm -hmm. So a lot of attention has been paid to the other um, to this special election as a likely or a potential Democratic target. Um, on paper, it's a good target. It starts in November. Um, so the election will be held on election day. It is a runoff election. So basically, the top two will go into a runoff if none of them get 50%. Um, the top two candidates at the moment are incumbent Republican se Senator Kelly Loeffler, or Kelly Leffler, um, who has faced some financial issues around the coronavirus, but has uh, been managed to recover from uh, these issues in recent polling and now has a fairly decent lead over Doug Collins in the most recent poll. And then and second up is fellow Republican Doug Collins, who was running as a uh, as kind of a Trump, Trump acolyte. Um, he's been really touting his connection to Trump and has been trying to pin Kelly Leffler as a tool of the establishment. Um, those are in the top two in the most recent Monmouth poll. Uh, Kelly Leffler is leading with 26 percent and Doug Collins is second at 20 percent. This is really important because if the top two are, are Republicans, this will be a guaranteed Republican hold. Um, and then the, the general election or the runoff election will be held between Leffler and Collins. Um, so the Democrats on their side hoped to rally around a candidate early, um, Raphael Warnock, who is a minister. Uh, he's a unique candidate um, being a minister uh, at a predominantly historically African-American church. And he had early support from congressmen like the late John Lewis. Um, but unfortunately for him, his campaign has failed to take off, and he sits at a th at around third or fourth place in most polling. The most recent poll had him at 9%. Democrats seem to be consolidating around Matt Lieberman, who is related to Joe Lieberman, um, and he is at 14% in the most recent poll. Um, so obviously, they're going to, hopefully, for them, for their perspective, they want to rally around one of these two candidates and not end up like a situation like Republicans have faced in California lately, where they've been locked out of major elections. Um, so I'll open it up to the panel here. I guess I'll kind of start off with Kraz. Um, mm -hmm. What's your take on what's going on in Georgia right now? I know this has really played into how we've been rating um, Georgia's mm -hmm. special election and our ratings. Yeah, so really it's, it's played – well, there are two factors to consider here. The first is the possibility of a lockout, and the second is uh, the strength of Warnock as a candidate. So uh, – on the possibility of a lockout, obviously recent polls have showed this happening. We're still considering that to be a fairly unlikely possibility come mm -hmm. November. Um, one of the reasons is that when you look at a lot of the recent polling, it shows um, Leffler and Collins getting 46, 48, 50, 49% of the vote, usually mid to high 40s. Um, we feel that in this environment and in this day and age in Georgia, that's probably fairly accurate. We feel that the two Republicans combined are going to get about 50 percent, maybe a little less or a little more. Um, but in all the recent polls, the Democratic candidates usually combine for, I think in the last one, it was 30 percent, you know, 33 percent, 34 percent. That discrepancy mm -hmm. won't hold. Democrats will get more than 34 percent of the vote on Election Day um, in the jungle, in the jungle primary. Um, so we don't believe that that will hold. Now, granted, there is a universe in which Democrats still get locked out. You know, maybe Leffler gets, uh, you know, 26 and Collins gets 25 and Warnock gets 
24 and Lieberman gets 20 and Tarver, who is the third Democrat, you know, gets 5%, right? There, there is a universe where it's possible. We just view it as unlikely. Um, but really the main reason we have it at likely R is because uh, we view Warnock as an exceptionally weak candidate. Um, despite being specially recruited by the uh, DSCC to run, um, being backed by, as you mentioned, the late John Lewis, um, Stacey Abrams uh, apparently pushed for him hard um, to the DSCC. Uh, he has pulled abysmally um, and not just, you know, struggling to pick up name recognition. You know, it's been months and he's polling in fourth place in some polls. Yeah, I don't think there's been a single poll with him in the runoff. Um, at mm-hmm. least it's been publicly released so far. Um, he's there was struggled one in May. Um, one in there was May. one okay. in May from, from Civic uh, Daily Costs mm-hmm. that had him so barely making it. Yeah, so he's, he's, you know, one or two polls maybe shown making the runoff. Um, his fundraising has been poor, despite the fact that Democrats all in Democratic Senate candidates all over the country have seen a surge in support and a surge in their chances. I mean, um, Teresa Greenfield in Iowa, um, you know, Cal Cunningham. These are the kind of candidates that were considered underdogs and have now seen their numbers, fundraising and polling numbers skyrocket. And Warnock has not capitalized in the slightest. And we view that as a sign of a very weak and very mismanaged campaign. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the endorsements for Warnock, he has a truly impressive list of endorsements Mm -hmm. that have come out. Um, You know, just looking at obviously had John Lewis, but you also have most of the the Democratic Senate delegation. Mm -hmm. You have Sanford Bishop, Jim, uh, Jim Clyburn, Hank Johnson, Ayanna Presley, David Scott. So he's united the progressive and conservative wings of the Democratic Party in Georgia, at least in theory behind him. Whereas Matt Lieberman has exactly one endorsement, and that is from Joe Lieberman, his father. <laughs> um, and, some, and he's, to his credit, he's made made the most of that one endorsement. Um, that's another factor here, obviously. Uh, Matt Lieberman is white, whereas Raphael Warnock is African-American. Um, in a state like Georgia, where there is a heavy African-American population, and where the, really the base of the Democratic Party in the state is from the African-American population, you would be expecting someone like Warnock, not just because of his, his skin color, but because of his... Um, his background, he's a, he's a pastor at a, at a historically African-American church and has the endorsement of most of the state's high-powered black uh, delegation. You would expect him to be doing better than he is at the moment. Yeah, uh, I thought he, on paper, was a fine candidate. Um, mm-hmm. I think Schumer going to recruit him makes perfect sense logically. It just seems to be one of those sure bets that didn't pay off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And equally interesting, I think I'll, I'll let kind of Joe com- comment on this, is the Republican side where uh, Leffler initially seemed to be kind of left for dead following her her, Senate, her scandal, which truly um, fa- was a big deal back in the day, if you remember. Uh, <laughs> I, believe this was, I believe this was only like a month or two ago. Um, where, Mid-May. Mid-May. Yeah. Mid-May. Where there were some stock uh, stock sales um, right around the time of the of COVID, Senator Richard Burr in North Carolina had a similar backlash. In fact, was subject to a Tucker Carlson television rant, and his response was to basically ignore it. Um, this seems to be Kelly Leffler's main strategy as well. In fact, her Twitter account has just gone on for months. Absolutely nothing, you know, nothing is wrong, nothing's normal, getting ratioed every single tweet, but apparently <laughs> it's not mattered because she's clawed her way back into first place. Yeah, no, uh, I was certainly surprised. By having Leffler in first place, I believe this is the first poll uh, she's been in first place in for a while. Uh, Collins has generally been considered the favorite Republican, actually, to move on, mainly based on the fact that his strengths are in the very heavily Republican areas 
of Georgia in the North, the 14th and the 9th district, mm -hmm. especially the 14th where he has mm -hmm. uh, now used to represent now officially. He is retired. He will not be back in that district, of course, come 2020. But I think Kraz brought up a very good point, though, about just uh, – uh, I think you mentioned that Stacey Abrams had mm -hmm. uh, endorsed Warnock and that she had pushed heavily for Warnock. And uh, I've seen some comments from some people that have kind of looked at that and say, well – this is maybe just another knock on Abrams as a candidate and as a and as a strat and as a political person. Uh, kind of this issue, the issue of Stacey Abrams for Georgia Democrats, kind of pushing off uh, state uh, state level and you know uh, congressional level uh, elections to seemingly target a vice presidential role that it very much looks like she will be passed over in the end for Kamala Harris or Susan Rice if reports are believed to be true. Uh, this, this to me, just seems like a recruiting failure in the end for Democrats as a whole. As we've all said, Warnock seemed like the candidate. He seemed like another Teresa Greenfield or a Cal Cunningham, an underdog guest candidate, but who had the right tools and who seemed to have the right background to make the moves in a Senate race like this. Uh, he just hasn't proved that, whether it's been through kind of poor use of campaign funds, uh, poor use of campaign time, even in COVID. I mean, we've seen more than enough candidates do just fine and improve in the COVID time period. Certainly Cal Cunningham is one of those candidates for sure. But uh, it, it's this this is probably the most disappointing competitive Senate race for Democrats, I think, so far when it comes to recruiting. Uh, obviously, there are other results in that poll. Uh, the presidential race was tied in this moment of poll between mm -hmm. Joe Biden and President Trump, which would be a big thing. But another and uh, another big thing was that David Perdue was up by six points mm -hmm. against John Ossoff, which is also a little bit further away in that race and what we have seen mm -hmm. in recent weeks when it comes to polling in that race. Uh, usually we've seen Ossoff around 45, 46, and Perdue around 48. So him at 49 wasn't necessarily surprising, but Ossoff at 43 is what was. Uh, so Ossoff, obviously, maybe it's kind of been the switch. Uh, people have kind of seen Ossoff as maybe doing a little bit better than people, I think, expected, to, expected him to when he first announced. And I think that Warnock has been a little bit more of a disappointment than people mm -hmm. expected when he first announced. And uh, I'm going to throw in a knock here. It's kind of surprising and uh, a little bit ironic, in my opinion, that uh, if we end up in a 50-50 uh, tied Senate uh, at the end of the night on election night, uh, that it could come down to this Georgia runoff and that it could be Joe Lieberman's son that Democrats are depending on for a certain majority. I think there is certainly something ironic about that. Very. But, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of where they're at right now. And, you know, it's going to, this is definitely one that we're going to be watching. Uh, but it's also one that we're going to kind of have to look at and say, maybe this is maybe just a little bit off the board more than we expected to be um, a Democrat at this time mm -hmm. and in this environment. Uh, I would like to say personally, I'm a little bit skeptical of this poll. Um, just because, uh, mainly because of the Loeffler result. Um, she seemed to have a very big jump back into first place. The last poll had Collins at 28%, I believe. So this poll seems better for Republicans than every other mm -hmm. poll that's come out. I'm not saying it's in yeah. the past week. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying I want to see one more poll from Georgia to see if this trend holds. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But to be huh. fair, if you look at the last four polls, Kelly Loeffler in these polls, or Leffler, I, I keep saying it wrong, um, the public policy polling back in June, she was at 21%, which is around two, two points down from, from Doug Collins. 
uh, a Gravis Marketing OAN poll, a.k.a. Junk Pile poll, um, had her, again, a similar thing. If you want to actually consider the poll, it had her down two um, to Doug Collins, 26 to 24. Battleground Connect, if you've heard of them, I haven't. They had her 17%, and then Monmouth now has her at 26%. It seems like um, the the peak of Doug Collins was the 34% poll he had with the Civics Daily Cost poll. Mm-hmm. I've been skeptical of the Civics Daily Cost polls for, for various reasons. Yeah. Um, but regardless of what the numbers are, um, I think if you're a Loeffler, you're much more confident about your chances now than back in May um, when this whole thing started to peak out. Yeah, it, it says a lot about Collins's campaign that he can't beat somebody who last month was caught insider trading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and th- that's the thing with Doug Collins is, is, at least for me, there's nothing compelling about him as a candidate. He represents a deep red district. His most noteworthy noteworthy trade is supporting Trump, of which Kelly Leffler has been consistent as well that she is very supportive of the president and his priorities. Um, so they're having to out kind of Trump each other, and there's nothing really about him personally that screams super compelling candidate. He's kind of just a guy. Um, whereas in theory, at least Leffler has some appeal to um, suburban voters, or at least on name, um, at least in my opinion. Um, well, and also to, to chime in on that a little bit, um, I think part of the reason that we might see some inconsistency is that sometimes jungle primaries can be very difficult to poll, um, mm-hmm. especially if the pollster, this is my understanding, but especially if the pollster is waiting by party, you know, you're waiting by Democrats and Republicans. Um, if you don't get a representative sample of, say, Republicans, um, you might have the big picture, right? You know, you might have the overall percentages, you might have the presidential top line, right? Mm-hmm. But you might have the jungle primary off because what Republicans are answering your poll or what Republicans you included in your poll might be, um, you know, more slanted towards one candidate or the other. And to, to briefly jump in on this jungle primary thing too, um, with Lieberman, it's another smaller reason I forgot to mention why we have the race that likely are is that um, while Lieberman could theoretically be the Democrat that makes the runoff, we also view him as weak just for different reasons. Um, we don't think he, you know, really has the name recognition or money to pull off a one-on-one win in the runoff. Um, also, geographically, he's from the Augusta area, I believe, um, mm-hmm. and he's not from a cr- one of the critical areas. You know, he's not from Metro Atlanta. Um, I w- if I had to guess, I would say his name recognition within that uh, media market is probably very low. And for a Democrat in Georgia, that's almost fatal. I have a hard time seeing a Democrat who has abysmally low name recognition in the Atlanta media market really getting anywhere. So we also view him as not really a viable alternative for Democrats. Mm -hmm. And it is worth noting, um, we are unique in having the Georgia special Senate election at likely are. Most other outlets, aside from this canon who has it as a toss up, uh, most of the all the other ones have it at lean are. So we're we're less confident on democratic chances in the seat than others, but I think the way Kras has explained it, um, that makes a lot of sense if you just look at the fundamentals of what's been going on in this race. Um, obviously, you hope after the general election, um, if it is a fifty-fifty Senate or a forty-nine to to fifty Senate, and you're forty-nine, uh, you know, forty-nine to forty-nine or forty-nine to fifty. And that one seat is going to be the difference between Democrats having a majority or having a functioning majority with 50 senators, assuming Joe Biden wins. This race mm-hmm. becomes all of a sudden very important because we do not project any candidate is going to have enough support to get over the 50 percent needed to win outright. 
Um, that would and be we, a minor we can't picture miracle. that changing unless you know unless Leffler or Collins <laughs> drop out. Yeah. That would be the only scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so a good discussion here overall. Um, definitely, if you have some comments on Georgia, be sure to leave them. Uh, we may go back to them at the end of the episode. Um, but for now, we're going to move on to our next topic, which is actually we've had some interesting. Um, so we're going to go over the Minnesota five special or the primary election on the Democratic side. Um, this is a race that we've kind of talked about before in passing. I know Jared Stone has talked about this race before in, in terms of the context of Jewish American and um, I, identity politics in, in Minnesota, but it's actually become a very competitive, at least in terms of uh, money, uh, money race. And I know Dylan has some, has some thoughts on this race. This is of course between Ilhan Omar, um, who was the incumbent in that district. She was first elected um, last, uh, last cycle to replace Keith Ellison, who decided to um, run for attorney general of Minnesota, a race that he won. Um, and so she's running for, um, her second term of the Democratic side. This is a predominantly Democratic district that Republicans have no chance in. So whoever wins this primary is almost certainly going to be the nominee. Uh, on the other side is a Democrat, Anton Melton Moe, who is an attorney. Um, he's put up some pretty impressive fundraising numbers, but also some recent actions from Ilhan Omar's side have made it um, a bit of an unfortunate thing for, for Democrats who are pursuing a more progressive agenda. So I'll kind of throw it to Dylan here to explain what's been going on in the Omar camp. So the Omar campaign, um, it, she's had a lot of missteps just in terms of mistakes that she's made in her rhetoric, um, but those weren't necessarily fatal. Um, but per some new FEC filings from last quarter, she paid her husband's consulting firm over a million dollars this campaign um, for various things. Um, some new reports suggest that 900,000 of that was for digital advertising, but the expense reports only show that 300,000 of those went to Facebook and Google ads, the two predominant ad services. Um, there is a chance that the other 600,000 were put elsewhere. There are programmatic ads that are only paid for after you get clicked, uh, after the ad gets clicked, but color me a little skeptical that 600,000 went to programmatic ads outside of the two major ad services. Um, so that kind of puts a different, that puts a different edge to the race. Anton um, Mellon Moe is not a progressive. Um, his attorney services were, uh, he worked for a predominantly union busting law firm. So he's not somebody that the progressive left would generally be favorable towards, but Omar's corruption, uh, seeming corruption, makes this a, a very interesting primary. Plus, Mo's um, fundraising numbers are imp really impressive, as Eric said. He raised over $3 million last quarter compared to Omar's 400000 which mm -hmm. that that's really bad for an incumbent. Um, I don't know how she isn't taking this seriously, but she needs to start. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the um, the numbers that were kind of put out, um, she's only just now started putting radio ads up, so on actual physical radio, and she has yet to reserve any television time. 
Um, right. which again, the, the rate of money she's been spending on digital marketing, uh, which apparently, according to her campaign, it's mostly covering ad buys on Pandora and iHeartRadio, along with streaming mm-hmm. video outlets. Um, the which, amount of money being spent there, that seems really questionable, at least to me, that you're spending that much money on digital radio. Yeah. Um, could, could I cut in on that just for a second? Sure. Because uh, according to Rob Pyers, um, that digital that advertising on iHeartRadio and Pandora is part of the nine hundred thousand that she gave to her husband's consulting firm. Mm. Again, I I tend to think that none of this makes up the six hundred thousand dollar gap, but that is important context. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Republicans have been. Uh, very angry at Ilhan Omar for comments that she's made. There's also been some pretty nasty, generally racially tinged stuff in her direction. Um, she is a practicing Muslim. She's a, a refugee. Um, so she's not, um, she's faced some disdain on that end, but also she's had some controversial comments um, to say the least. Um, so this is uh, kind of an important race. And also the seat just in general has tended to elect um, Democrats that are, that are Muslim um, it's a majority white district, but it is the most diverse district in the state of Minnesota. Um, it, it's you know rooted in Minneapolis. It's only around uh, 63% white, which by Minnesota standards is um, it's pretty diverse by that by all accounts. And also uh, Ilhan, I mean obviously Keith Ellison uh, was kind of a really big name from that district as well. Yeah, um, I'm fairly left wing. Nobody can question that but this is omar needs to watch out because this is way more competitive than she's treating it raising four hundred thousand is not nearly good enough mm-hmm. if you want to win a competitive primary yeah to be fair there's been no polling in this district that there, we know of there actually oh, was i'm there sorry has. there was one poll uh, oh, you can, the omar you, internal uh yeah the change poll you can throw it in the garbage but it had omar up by like 28 percent Mm-hmm. Which but obviously I, it's changed. It's an internal, um, right? I, I don't doubt that she's up, but it's a change internal. So I'm almost willing to completely throw it in the garbage. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, if I can chime in on this, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Limited knowledge of the district. Uh, I think, you know, I think that she should take this seriously. You know, the old saying: you either run unopposed or you run scared. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's good. She probably should take it seriously. You know, that being said for her opponent, I don't really see his natural base in the district. Um, yeah. you know, the primary mm-hmm. elector is not very moderate, um, in the slightest, um, you know, largely what I tend to think is for, um, primaries against politicians like Omar, who, you know, are considered to be more ideologically extreme. I think that there is a tendency to view them as more in danger than maybe they actually are yes. because people don't like their rhetoric and they assume that, um, you know, the, the primary voters in their district also find their rhetoric distasteful. And you see Democrats do it a lot. Um, you know, Steve King is an example. Now, obviously, Steve King actually ended up losing, but he weathered multiple primary, credible primary challenges you know, when he still had rhetoric that many Democrats thought was deeply problematic, he weathered multiple credible primary challenges over the years. Um, you know, other Republicans like Matt Gates, 
um, and Louis Gomer um, have obviously Scott DeJarlais in Tennessee. Scott DeJarlais, yeah. I mean, have 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 weathered primary challenges from state legislatures and local government officials and wealthy businessmen. I mean, they have. Uh, I, I think that in in Omar's case, you know, I think that you know, obviously, the spending is an issue, and she should take it seriously. But I also think that maybe I would not personally consider her to be in as much danger. Um, cause I think people tend to overestimate the d- danger of those kinds of representatives are in primaries. Could I chime back in? Yeah, I would say, I'm gonna try and chime in here. Yeah. yeah give, uh, give Joe just a second here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, cause yeah. I, I'm going to push back on Kraz here a little bit here. Uh, I think Omar's case with the continued information of this possible scandal and corruption. And if you've been following any Minneapolis news, which I've seen, a, I don't follow them, but I've seen a couple stories from them. Uh, mm-hmm. The local Minneapolis newspapers have been covering some of her exploits, the, the issues that she's had in her personal life, uh, the issues with the finances and some of the shadiness that looks like that's been going there. And to be fair to Melton Mew, he's not really the, like the ACC, the uh, the Cabrera Cabrera, the whoever ran against AOC <laughs> in New York. <laughs> Uh, her, he, he's not running like that. He is not running on some moderate campaign at all. He is running still on help Medicare for all. He is still running on free public education. He is still running on generally progressive issues. And that's where I think we're seeing this divide here. This is still a guy who is a minority. He compare, he, he's, you know, he's a local in the community. He's a community activist. He has raised a lot of money. Uh, I think Jared Polis, who is the uh, governor, Democratic governor of Colorado, I believe was revealed to be one of his recent donors, which mm-hmm. uh, might probably will upset the Internet Rose Twitter. But uh, I, yeah, the probably won't matter in the large scheme of things. But I, I, I've had a gut feeling about this race for about a month now that I feel like Omar is in more trouble than people are giving her credit. I think this race is actually going to end up being closer than the Michigan 13 Democratic primary between Rashida Tlaib oh, and absolutely. Brenda Jones, which is certainly a leg that I'm sure not many people will go out on right now, but I am. Mm-hmm. No, uh, no. I, 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 there, there, is, there is something in my gut that is telling me that Omar is in danger. And I made a comment on my Twitter a couple of nights ago to someone, uh, kind of to show difference between you two. Tlaib says one or two dumb things a year. That can be used as fodder by the opposition, kind of at all, like like Kraz mentioned, a Louis Gomer, a Scott Day Yarnans. But that's not enough for the uh, for anyone to throw them out in the primary. For with Omar, for me, not only does she say those one to two to three stupid things a year, but she's also now coming off as kind of this corrupt-ish style person with some of her finances and her pack issues. You can't do both, in my opinion, especially as a first year. Congresswoman, I don't think you can do both. And I think that's why this race is going to be closer. And that's why I honestly do think that Ilhan Omar is in danger of losing to Antoine Melton Mew. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to chime in here real quick, just to uh, give my take since I haven't put out a whole lot in the seat yet. I'm kind of in the middle. I think this is something, a race that she should definitely pay an eye on or pay attention to. I think progressives are kind of uniquely in a position where they are not going to be very happy about this campaign finance stuff. They may take it more seriously than some people on the Republican side of the aisle or on the more moderate side, because when you vote for a candidate who's supposed to be a progressive champion, someone who's really championing you know, cleaning up politics, um, having them be you know, funneling money to their spouse, and then ultimately that goes to themselves, 
that's not a really good look. Um, the other end of things is that she actually had started getting some pushback from the Somali community in in Minneapolis. Um, they were started, at least some of them, there have been articles about this. Some of the community were seeing her as kind of a net negative where she was presenting them um, uh, not really a, the, the best light of their community uh, statewide. Obviously, that's not all of them. That's not uh, probably even a substantial chunk, but she's a Somali immigrant. She's very strong in that community. You would expect that to be her rock solid coalition there. And it is a very large part of Minneapolis. It has a very large Somali community. If she's doing worse with among those voters, among her own community, that's the sort of thing you may be concerned about her race. That being said, I don't see it flipping. I don't see Tlaib losing either. Um, I think the most likely scenario is some sort of double digit win. But given we've seen lately, if you're not spending money and the other person is spending money, it's pretty easy to look back later and be like, hey, you know, maybe I shouldn't have let my opponent be running unopposed and in a grand junction, you know, in, in, like in Colorado, uh, <laughs> you know, like you're either, you're either polling, you're spending your money on polling or you're spending it on ads. You're, if you're not spending on anything at all, you're just funneling it to yourself. You're not going to know if you're in trouble. No. And I'm also kind of in the middle of you, of you two. I think she is in trouble. Um, but I still think she's the odds on favorite. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would feel pretty safe putting five bucks on her winning. Um, I wouldn't put a hundred bucks on it, but you asked me to put five on it. I would. Um, that said, she's only reserved $3,000 in radio spending. That's less than Scott Tipton uh, <laughs> put down. So she's obviously not learning that lesson. And mm -hmm. on Melon on Melon Mew, he's not a great candidate. Um, he's run into some controversies of his own. Um, he made a comment to a, I believe it was a local newspaper, where he said that he won't be beholden to Jewish people if he were in Congress, which is really bad to say when you're running That's against not... somebody who uh, <laughs> has been accused of anti-Semitism. <laughs> you have a very low bar to clear. Don't say something that's anti-Semitic and don't look corrupt. And he's failing on one, and I'd argue he's probably failing on both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and obviously the district will change a little bit in redistricting. Um, right now, Minnesota is projected to lose a congressional district. Um, the impact on Minneapolis is not clear. Um, that could mean it absorbs more of the more white areas of Hennepin County. Um, it also depends on who controls the legislature. Um, but this is a race we're keeping an eye on. We'll, you know, we'll keep you posted on it when it comes at election night. If something happens, you might have an idea of why it would happen um, from here. But again, the odds on favored in this is Ilhan Omar. But this is some concerning stuff underneath that that you'll be wise not to. She would be wise not to disregard the possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we're going to take a quick uh, one-minute break here. We'll be back in one minute. All right, welcome back. Um, so we're going to go into the second half of our program right now. Um, so we got two more segments up for you. We're, we're saving the best for last with kind of our responses to the uh, incendiary Trump tweet this morning about elections. But we're going we're gonna to tease you a little bit and save that for later. Uh, we're going to start off this last segment with uh, the New York results. Those have finally started to trickle in uh, only like a month after the election. Um, they finally started to have some results and we've had some big ones come in so far. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it to whoever wants to kind of go off on those. I know we know the result of Carolyn Maloney's primary among others. 
Kraz, do you want to take that one? I mean, yeah, I can, I, I can talk a little bit about it. Um, so yeah, Carolyn Maloney has uh, hung on in New York's 12th congressional district. This covers um, a large chunk of Manhattan, um, as well as some of Queens, I believe. Um, Queens and Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Queens and Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. So uh, she has hung on. Um, she was uh, challenged um, by the same challenger as last time. Um, both times was a closer race than expected. Um, some other results, um, obviously Jamal Bowman was officially declared the winner, um, against Elliot Engel. Um, we've had, uh, a number of primary wins for, uh, progressives in New York city, um, you know, against more moderate incumbents. It seems that generally speaking, you know, with Bowman, uh, and Jones in uh, the 17th district, um, as well as it looks like at the state legislature level, um, a lot of progressive wins, a lot of wins that were backed by, uh, you know, Democratic Socialists of America, Democratic Socialists of New York. It looks like um, maybe AOC's win and AOC's rise to prominence was less of a one-off and more of, you know, the start of maybe a bigger trend um, in New York City. Um, you know, essentially the progressive movement there has a number of proofs of concept now, so to speak. Um, so if there's any long-term effects of these primary wins, I mean, look for progressives try to replicate this kind of, I don't want to say machine, it's not a machine, but this kind of uh, apparatus and infrastructure going forward in other major cities, Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, um, LA, places like that. So um, that's definitely, that, that was definitely interesting to see in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I know Joe has some, has some opinions on where the justice Democrats can target next, you know, going. Yeah, from here. for sure. I mean, I wrote an article about that. If, if we, if I, I'll do a little one minute about that, uh, Obviously, Justice Democrats have shown their strength in New York and kind of the uh, Democrats along those lines, as Chris said, have shown their strength in the New York, especially the city area, uh, quite heavily now. Uh, The question is, where do they go next? Uh, There's been talk of the West Coast. There's been talk of the Mid-Atlantic. There's even some talk of trying in the South, though, with the heavy amount of African-American population down there who have been shown to still be less than favorable to... uh, these type of pol- uh, these type of politicians and uh, upstarts in primaries, uh, I don't think that's possible, plausible right now. Uh, for me, it's the Mid Atlantic. I think my area, the Philadelphia, the Northern Virginia, the suburbs area, I think are areas that are prime for striking personally. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, like Chris said, this is some huge victories for New York progressives for sure, uh, just for the progressive movement in general to continue to grow the bench in state and uh, congressional uh, benches. Uh, and to kind of go back to New York 12, uh, it's kind of, I think this is really kind of a hard thing to swallow for Patel because uh, Lauren Ashcraft, who got about 13% of the vote, uh, probably a little bit under that now, that mail-in's been counted, but around 12 and a half, 13% of the vote, was also running a very similarly progressive and uh, DSA-style com- campaign like Patel was. And uh, obviously Patel losing by about 3 to 4% of the vote uh, – Ashcraft's vote would have pretty clearly likely put him over the top, even with the mail-in ballots. So uh, this is Maloney. If if I were to make a list right now of people who are potentially to be primaried in 2022, uh, if she doesn't retire, Maloney is probably number one for me right now. Uh, she she is quite clearly in danger. I could very easily see Patel try and go for a third time. That would not surprise me at all, personally. Uh, he decide if he were to decide to go for a third time, just because he 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 was one of the very few 
uh, obviously, uh, Adam Bundkadenko in against Yvette Clark did much worse uh, this time around. Uh, when it comes to Patel, he did much better, and uh, Maloney's majority has certainly shrunk quite a quite a considerable amount. Mm-hmm. So, and this yeah. is an important district. Sorry, I'm going to go ahead just to kind of explain the baseline of New York 12 in particular. Um, this is the wealthiest congressional district in the United States. Um, it has the east side of Manhattan, Greenpoint section of Brooklyn, portions of Queens, uh, Roosevelt Island. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very white district. It's, you know, 64, 65% of the population are white. And it voted heavily for Democrats. You know, it, it, only maybe 14% of the vote went to went to Donald Trump, which is significant because it's the district that actually contains uh, Trump Tower within it. <laughs> um, obviously, Donald Trump lives in Florida now, um, so he, his representative would not be um, whoever is in the seat, but for a while, this is kind of a, you know, a, we can put a socialist in Donald Trump's district would be kind of a, a reason for people to go here. Um, but the strength that Democrats are having or that justice Democrats and progressive, more socialist Democrats are having and even districts like this, which are, you know, very, very wealthy um, and very white are kind of a good indication for their future, in my opinion, at least. So if I could a little bit, um, push back just a bit on the Patel Ashcraft difference. Um, Patel really wasn't running all that differently on policy from Maloney. Um, In fact, a lot of the left-wing activists, uh, the Sunrise Movement in particular, endorsed Carolyn Maloney in the days leading up to the primary um, over Patel because of some concerns around his campaigning and just some irregularities and some strange statements. Um, I, a bunch of New York progressives that I know said that they're indistinguishable. So, I mean, it, Patel probably will run again, and my guess is he would win if he won again, because I don't think Ashcraft would try a third time, or a second time, rather. But I, it would more be an an aesthetics primary like Presley versus Capuano was. Yeah. And to chime in then a little bit, I think, um, you know, when we look at the primary landscape, you know, for both parties, um, you know, and especially for a lot of times these democratic primaries, it's important to remember that a lot of it does have to do with stylistic differences um, or, you know, some people will call them superficial. Um, I don't know if that's what I would call them, but they're stylistic. Um, and this is actually something that's come up a lot um, in the Kennedy versus Markey primary, where it's kind of the inverse of this, where, you know, in New York's 12th, you had Patel running um, as in a, you know, aesthetically as a progressive um, and had a lot of progressive backing and his opponent was seen as very establishment, no, not necessarily moderate, but establishment. Um, Whereas, you know, Kennedy SC's on a lot of the same aesthetics. He's running as a young, fresh new face. He's hit Markey over not being in the district, over voting yes on the Iraq war. I mean, all these various kind of aesthetically progressive things, but Markey has all the progressive backing. Um, and that has frustrated a lot of progressive groups because they say, you know, how can people not see that this is transparently, you know, Kennedy primary, Markey from the right, um, but I think it does speak to that in politics in general, but especially in primaries where policy differences to most voters are more minimal, 
aesthetics do matter a lot and, mm -hmm. and that can be a good and bad thing for candidates. Yeah. Um, I, no, I completely agree. Um, Maloney definitely does have the more establishment seeming aesthetic. And I, I think Patel will benefit from that in 2022 if he goes again. Um, uh, sorry, I couldn't help but laugh when you said Kennedy is running on being a fresh new face. <laughs> <laughs> he's running on having a having an exciting last name. That's what he's running on. <laughs> exciting last names win. That means I'll be president one day. He's running on the, he's running on the platform of uh, political dynasties don't have a big enough say in our politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting with Markey is he genuinely has credibility on an issue progressives really care about, which is the Green New Deal. Uh, he has been for a long time an environmentalist voice, and that's why I believe it was the Boston Globe uh, endorsed him over mm. Kennedy. They like Kennedy, but they really like what Ed Markey has done on the environmental front and how consistent he's been. Um, him supporting it, the Green New Deal, isn't a stretch. He was he was pretty close to there to begin with, so they um, you know they're willing to give him some leeway in that situation. Yeah. Uh, on um, that on that front, AOC did cut an ad for Markey today, which. Mm. I think mm -hmm. is more relevant than her endorsement of him almost a year ago at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, and, and uh, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, just to, just to come back to New York a little bit, um, I think that a lot of people have pointed out, and perhaps rightly so, that New York's counting of ballots in particular um, might bear uh, a lot of relevance to the country as a whole. Um, mainly because it could be a canary in, a, in the coal mine um, for some of the problems that may exist. Now, granted, New York, we should say, has particularly strict and arcane uh, absentee ballot laws. They always take a really long time to count. Um, so, you know, we don't expect the results in Wisconsin to take a month. Um, but that being said, um, you know, this is maybe in many ways, I think a lot of states should learn more than they probably are that if they don't take the necessary steps to, you know, get things counted quickly and efficiently, you know, the public could be waiting a long time to see some results. And that is, you know, in this environment, and we're going to obviously transition into something, you know, directly related to this in a few minutes, but in this environment, I can think of nothing worse for <laughs> public attitude and for public discourse than waiting potentially, you know, a month to see the results in Florida. We've, we've gone through that before. Um, and it didn't, did not end, you know, very uh, pretty. So, <laughs> You know, this could be the canary in the coal mine. Kraz, you're not looking forward to election week? Well, oh, God, yeah, I think, I think, election I, think month. Said, I think Joe said earlier, or maybe it was Eric said earlier, you know, if, if the Senate is 50-50 or 50-49 at the end of the night, and I thought, I don't think it's going to be by the end of the night. I don't know. Well, no. uh, if yeah. Arizona's half as bad as it was in 2018. Oh, oh gosh. And, yeah. I've heard this if polling For private people, anything. I've heard there's going to be some improvement in that front. Personally. Well, that's good. Well, that's they're probably, yeah. they're probably and, was going to be some improvement before 60% of ballots <laughs> move to mail-in. And, and to be fair, let's let's be honest. I mean, if polling is showing anything in that Arizona Senate race right now, we probably will know it on election night. <laughs> polling. So we probably yeah. will know it. Yeah. One other thing I want to add to that, uh, that Kennedy-Markey primary is that viewers may find interesting is that uh, uh, Kennedy has actually been endorsed by not one, but two Republicans. He's been endorsed by Bill Weld 
and Gabriel Gomez, who ran against Markey in 2013 and ran a pretty respectable campaign, all things considered, only lost by around 10, um, which in Massachusetts, as you know, it's that's pretty decent. Yeah. Um, so he is being supported to some degree from the right, as odd as that seems. Um, oh, no. oh, no, almost all of his support is coming from the right of Markey. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, definitely um, we will keep you posted as New York results continue to come in. Um, and we'll keep you posted throughout election month as New York, you know, in November as New York results continue to come in and they race to see if they can get their votes in before the electoral college certification deadline. Um, oh God. <laughs> but we're going to move on to our last segment, which is, um, so you've been waiting for this. It's the Trump tweet. Uh, he decided to pull Bev Purdue and tweet about the possibility of postponing the election. Um, uh, this has not been good. Uh, he's got some pushback from Republicans. Um, Mitch McConnell was not happy. Um, there's some other Republicans as well um, in the House who were hmm. seemingly apoplectic at this. Uh, Mitt Romney obviously was not was not pleased. Um, on the other hand, he had people like John Cornyn and Kevin Kramer who were insisting this was clearly a joke, even though it's pinned to you know, President Trump's Twitter at the moment. It's his. He's so proud of this tweet that he pinned it to his profile. Um, so. Any thoughts on the poss possibility of postponing the election? Or, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think how much we really need to talk about it because uh, I don't. I don't think it's going to happen just because <laughs> he, he, he it's, if, if Mitch McConnell has come out so hard against it as he had, this is not even going to see the light of day because he <laughs> Congress to do this. And yeah. uh, not not only would you fail to get the House in this scenario by probably a very large amount bar the Louisville mayors of the house. Uh, you know, you're, you're not going to probably even see 20 votes, maybe not even 10 votes in the Senate <laughs> uh, for this. So you think McConnell would let it get to a vote. I don't even McConnell probably wouldn't even let it get to a vote considering how hard yeah. he's not against it today. He wouldn't let it get through committee. Yeah. And it's not even just like Republicans. We've seen Republican governors. We've seen Republican secretary of states. In places like Wisconsin, come out against mm -hmm. uh, the co come out on Twitter against this about any type of pushback on uh you know uh, excuse me on on you know delaying the election. It's it's not going to happen. As much as the president might try and hope and try and do this fascismo esque type thing, uh, it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's just never going to happen. It's a congressional <laughs> rule. The Supreme Court will tell him to screw off if he does try and do this through unilaterally. Uh, the Supreme Court will have the case in the hour and will proceedingly tell him to screw off. <laughs> John Roberts uh, and Neil Gorsuch will be so upset again. <laughs> well, and, and, and well, I was going to say, I, I think it's also useful to go over a little bit of the practical reasons why this isn't going to happen. I mean, we can talk all day about Republicans, you know, saying it's not going to happen. And obviously that's, that's relevant. Although I do think there are probably some viewers and especially those on the left that say, oh, well, you know, they always said that they would keep, keep him in check. Um, you know, keep him in check. Uh, and they haven't so far. So why should we believe this? Why should we believe they won't just fold when push comes to shove? Uh, so as Joe said, the date of the presidential election is set by Congress. For to change it, um, you know, Congress would need to pass um, a law saying it's now different. That's obviously not going to happen. Um, mm -hmm. You know, on How top of that, the law. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, first, yeah, first pass a law, and then pass a law about this, and then. Um, 
you know, again, the the dates for congressional elections are set in stone. They're set by the Constitution. Um, there can be no delay barring a constitutional amendment. The date for when the Electoral College meets and votes um, is also set by, you know, by statute. It, it, it's not going to change. Um, and then the term of the president also is set by the Constitution. So if there were to hypothetically be no election, Trump and Pence's terms would run out on uh, January 20th, no matter what. Um, and there's been some suggestion that maybe, um, you know, Republican states will just shut down the polling places, um, you know, at, at Trump's behest. Um, for the presidential election, this might be logistically possible, but for state and local offices, it, it's not possible. Their terms also run out. This is one of the reasons that Tony Evers in Wisconsin was so hesitant to delay that Supreme Court election in April was, you know, there are lots of cases where, you know, state legislatures, state senators, city councilmen, the, the, the really the elected officials that make people's lives run on a day-to-day -day basis, their terms are also going to run out in January sometime. So really, you know, practically speaking, um, this is not something that even if there was a, a bipartisan consensus that the election should be delayed, I don't think we could pull it off. And certainly we're not going to be able to, we would not be able to pull it off logistically um, with only Donald Trump pushing for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of resent that we have to talk about a Trump tweet um, <laughs> personally, but no, seriously, this is ridiculous. And I'd like to think that this is just him trying to distract from the fact that the GDP contracted by 32%, yeah, but that's bad. That's bad. <laughs> and I'd like to think this is him trying to distract from that. No, I tend to think this is just him being nervous. He's going to lose. Mm -hmm. Um, and like in the, yeah, I don't think anybody would be happy with the President Pelosi scenario. I don't think the left <laughs> would like that. The right certainly <laughs> wouldn't like that. <laughs> Only resistance Twitter would like that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's the thing is like the big thing is the constitutional hurdle, right? If you're even to do mm -hmm. this in theory, the reason I mentioned New York needing to meet the, the deadline for certifying mm -hmm. their votes is that's like a month and a half after the election, which theoretically is enough time. It took New York a month to get all the primary votes figured out. Mm -hmm. um, like if they can't get, if they have a ton of votes coming in and they can't figure out it's a legitimate concern because you can't certify an election if all the votes aren't in um, that. I mean, that's, that's a fringe concern, but, and it looks like it wouldn't even matter at this point, but like you literally can't push it back any further than, mm -hmm. than anything. Um, I, and I, I did just want to on, on that. I, there's one thing I meant to say quickly is that there's also been some talk that uh, certain Republican state legislatures will essentially shutter their polling places or at least you know not count the um, popular vote in their states and merely award the electors unilaterally. Um, I don't really wanna give this theory, uh, we call it a conspiracy theory, legitimacy <laughs> going forward, um, you know, but just barring the math, I mean, the math doesn't even work out. There aren't enough states controlled by Republican trifectas, or enough swing states, I should say, controlled by Republican trifectas. Um, and, you know, there aren't enough governors that would sign off on this. And, you know, even the states that are Republican trifectas, some are very narrow. This isn't getting through the the one-seat Republican majority in the Arizona Senate or House, whichever one it is. It, it's not mm -hmm. happening. Um, so I would say, and, you know, if the can't, or, you know, if the Kansas Secretary of State is coming out and saying this isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, so you might see you might see that floated as an alternative of how Trump could, you know, bypass the popular vote in some way. Um, mm -hmm. 
I would I would shudder to give that any any legitimacy as of now. Yeah, they're they're looking for ways for Trump to win, where <laughs> where their options are starting to run thin. Mm-hmm. Well, the easiest way is to campaign and to change minds. But if you can't change minds, I guess the second best thing is to change, change rules. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, if you but, can't if you can't win the election, just cancel the election. <laughs> I mean, I, personally, I think cancel culture is coming too far for just canceling elections. Um, <laughs> The like, cancel culture that Republicans can like, <laughs> but the, Whoa, the funny thing is, like, it's not gonna, yeah, it's not going to um, to happen. No. I think the big problem is we're building up towards November, where you have Donald Trump insisting that mail-in ballots are a fraud. You can't do them. Mm-hmm. That there's some difference between mail-in and absentee ballots, and that those are different, and that one of them is fine, the other is not. Um, when really they're the same thing, and so you're going to have the situation quite possibly where people are turning out on election day in droves. You know, Republican voters, if you look at the number of mail-in ballots that have been requested in states like North Carolina, where it's typically, there's typically not a huge difference, it's astronomical at the moment. You can have a situation where the nightmare scenario where, you know, election day results come in and Trump is leading, and then the mail-in ballots come in, and they're legitimate ballots that are cast by legitimate people, and then, you know, they flip the election, he's like, well, that's fraud, I told you, I warned you the mail-in ballots are going to change the vote. I, well, yeah, they're going to change uh, the vote, but that that they were their votes. Like they're changing because of their votes, not because of fraud. Like mm-hmm. that's the nightmare scenario if we don't get these votes counted on time. Can, can I just say I feel like that's the most likely scenario at this point. <laughs> and at least well, to be fair, like, we we have had some like good news from states. Like we saw Texas do generally very very well with most of their mail-in ballots in their mm-hmm. primary, and to, and to see a big state like Texas do that. It's hopefully a better look for a state like Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina, who didn't who didn't have to deal with statewide races uh, in mail in yep. ballots. Uh, most of their races, and especially like the big statewide ones, were uh, pre COVID. Obviously, we will see Michigan mm-hmm. this week, this upcoming week, uh, with tech, uh, coverage, of course, live here on Elections Daily. Uh, <laughs> of um, uh, see how they do congressionally wise. Obviously, that's going to be a big state to watch. Uh, this upcoming Tuesday night, but for sure, I, I thought Texas was at least a somewhat hopeful sign that at least states can do it with the mail-in ballots, even if they haven't done a whole lot of them previously. It, it's a sign that they can at least do it, which I think is mm-hmm. important when it comes to the, the general, the whole general sphere of things. Well, I will also chime in on this. I think that, you know, uh, we saw a lot of problems in New York and that worries people, you know, given how long it, they took to get counted there. Um, but I should know that there are a number of um, large swing states that already, you know, do a lot of absentee ballots and count them with no problem. Colorado, um, North Carolina, mm-hmm. Florida, we know Texas is still going to be substantially in person voting. Um, and there will be a number of states that are going to ca- cast their ballots or count their ballots, pa- ballots, I should say, uh, very quickly. So, you know, in terms of this being a nationwide problem, uh, I'm tempted to say that it will probably be confined to a number of states where there might be a lot of mail-in votes, but where they don't have experience counting them quickly. That's Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm not sure about Iowa, but Wisconsin and Pennsylvania for sure. So those are the states to watch. Um, But it's worth noting that there are a lot of swing states that already count a lot of their ballots by mail. 
um, they will be unaffected. And, and on top of that, right, if this is, you know, we're going to have an indication, right? Florida always counts by election night. Georgia was able to count the results quickly in their primary. Um, so if we get to election night and, you know, Biden's winning Florida by three, four points, for example, or Trump's winning Florida by three, four points, you know, we're going to know the results. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say it's hopefully, fingers crossed, won't be as much of a disaster as people are fearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's a problem that's contained to a few states, um, but obviously it's, it depends on the states are, are having a problem. For example, the problem with Florida in 2000 wasn't that Florida counted their votes too slowly. Mm -hmm. The problem was in the recounts and the fact that mm -hmm. the votes were so narrow because of poorly designed you know, ballots in South Florida, mm -hmm. which hopefully they have fixed by this point. It's been 20 years. They had another issue last time. Um, you know, Hopefully they've managed to address this problem. But um, you know, we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on this in election night. Obviously, we'll be covering uh, the election in November live. Uh, we'll be, we'll be, you know, whatever comes in, we'll be able to do. We'll have you covered there. Um, so definitely stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate um, thoughts on this. Um, there is a serious issue that has been going on with uh, the, the the poor counting of votes, specifically in New York. So hopefully that's just a them problem, and we're not having to relitigate this in November or December. Mm -hmm. You know, as as it becomes election month as a as a reality rather than a joke. Mm -hmm. um, before we sign off here, I was going to respond to a few comments real quick. Um, John, a friend of the show, Jonathan Rotenberg, um, asked if Tony Gonzalez has won in the 23rd district. Uh, it does appear that he has. We had initially called the race for Raul Reyes because of results that had come in that indicated that uh, Bayard County had concluded counting their votes. The only reason we made that call was because Bayard County said they were in, and it seemed pretty clear. And then Bayard County started counting votes again. Um, and so that's the reason why it flipped it because of those votes in Bayard County. Um, so we got it wrong on that one, but, um, that's a, you know, that's just, that's an issue with them not, you know, giving the, the correct vote, uh, you know, saying they were hundred percent in when they're not in. Um, so he does appear to have pulled that off very narrowly. The recount has concluded. Um, so that's definitely, um, you know, a surprise result there, but it's the result Republicans would have wanted in that district. Mm -hmm. It takes it from being a, a safe Democratic district to a likely Democratic district as we have it rated at the moment. Mm -hmm. And we thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, we mm -hmm. really appreciate you being here. Be sure to, you know, give us five stars. Uh, we really appreciate your support on that platform. Um, so yeah, thanks for uh, being here. And where can we, I know we have you guys listed on the video, but for those mm -hmm. who are listening without the video, where can we find you guys on social media? Uh, you can find me at Dylan B. Wade one on Twitter and you can find my podcast popcorn politics on YouTube and Ocelli.com. Mm -hmm. um, and you can find me at, uh, at Kraz Grenitz on Twitter. That's uh, at K R A Z G R E I N E T Z. And uh, you can find me at, at Joseph Szymanski. That is Joseph. J-O-S-E-P-H, uh, Szymanski, S-Z-Y-M-A-N-S-K-I. Yeah, and thank you. And you can find me on Twitter at the Cunningham 2 And you can also find us on Twitter at Elections Daily and at elections-daily.com. So, uh, yeah, thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.